Welcome to the Programming Leadership Podcast, where we help great coders become skilled leaders and build happy, high-performing software teams. Welcome to this episode of Programming Leadership. I am so excited to have Jason Wong with me today. Jason is just the most amazing person. And frankly, we've just had like 10 minutes of conversation that I'm so excited about sharing with you. So we're going to dive right back in there. Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super, super excited to be here. Jason, we were in the midst of a conversation and I want to just rewind. So let's talk about this idea of are our models of leadership working in tech now? And maybe what other options, what other, what, how do we need to think about the models we have? What, what's working in your mind? Or yeah, <laughs> I feel like a lot of it is not working, right? I feel like, um, you know, I think when I come into organizations or even actually if we just think about who our models are, like the Steve Jobs, the Steve Ballmers, the uh, Jeff Bezos, and like, what are those folks known for, right? And, and what are we trying to do and what, what do people sort of try to emulate? Um, and I think there's like a lot of the behaviors um, are just deeply uh, counterproductive, right? It is like Steve Ballmer throwing chairs across a room, right? Um, it is uh, Steve Jobs. If you ride the elevator with him, like you might get fired. Um, <laughs> right. It is, um, you know, Elon Musk, I think with his, you know, you, you know, hundred hour work week is like your, is, is the optimal. Um, and, uh, my perspective is, you know, maybe these folks were successful in spite of their deficiencies rather than because of them. Um, and so what does leadership look like that is, you know, more inclusive, more collaborative, um, less confrontational. I did notice that you mentioned all the role models you mentioned were men and white men actually, to be honest. Um, so, but yeah, I've, I've noticed it. I, I think I've heard of this idea called the great man leadership sometimes this idea that, and maybe I'm adding too much to it, but the idea that some people are just born leaders and then those of us, if you're like me who aren't the best we can do is to try and, like you said, emulate them. Right. And yeah, I would, I would say that I, that is the narrative and I would love to change it. I would love to find a way to sort of take the masculinity out of leadership um, and turn it into a less confrontational uh, leadership model into a more collaborative leadership model. Do you see um, Do you see companies that are that are actively striving or or doing a good job in this way? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> none actually come to mind right now. Um, I think a lot of it is because management and leadership is a highly underinvested in skill. Uh, and practice uh, in mm-hmm. companies. Uh, it might also be because, like I was just thinking about the question I asked, and I really asked it from our perspective, you and I, two guys on the right. internet. We may not see behind the curtain at most companies. Uh, true. Um, I feel like in a, some of the work that I'm doing these days, I do get to see behind many of those curtains. <laughs> um, mm. And it's and there is, I mean, I don't want to be just hating on folks. There are reasons for this, like the systems that are in place make it really difficult to focus on good leadership and management when the desired outcomes are 10x growth and um, 
all these sort of, I guess, important and urgent things that run, that uh, take over your day to day versus like some of the important, not, not urgent things that, um, you know, in the long run pay off. Yeah. I like that. I like that you kind of frame it as a system and the idea that it seeks that goal, whatever the goal is, it's like 10 X growth, right? It's going right. to strive for that goal, probably, um, at the expense of a lot of the other things we're talking about. What, right. I, I don't know. What goals, maybe are there some different goals our management and leadership systems should strive for? So where I feel like this is, uh, where I'm still collecting data is what I've seen from successful companies is that successful companies often succeed in spite of themselves rather than because of themselves. Uh, It is you hit that business model, you hit that product market fit, and the company just takes off. And it doesn't matter, it, it kind of in some ways, you know, in that stage, doesn't matter how good you are or how bad you are at managing. <laughs> uh, um, at the company ends up succeeding or making money, right? And so then this becomes a question of, well, we're on this trajectory. Like, we need to do some soul searching of how do we want to behave in this moment, right? How do we want to hold ourselves in this moment? And what are, what are our values and focuses? So there's that bit of it. I think there's also uh, a coming trend, and I, I think we, we're starting to see it, of... Uh, uh, moving out of this uh, sort of uh, uh, corporations as, as returning shareholder value as the sole definition of a, of a company, um, especially in this moment where, you know, the chef incident just happened, um, where, you know, they got a lot of pushback for who their clients are and who they're taking money from. Um, and so there's a lot, there's, there's beginning to be a stronger call for how do we incorporate our values into our corporations rather than just thinking them as money and investor money-making machines. In case listeners don't know about the chef incident, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So chef recently signed a new contract with uh, the department of Homeland security uh, and ice. Um, and one and chef, uh, their software depends on some open source pieces, uh, contributions. Um, and, one of the owners of a vital piece of the chef open source stack wasn't agreeable with his software being used in the way that uh, DHS and ICE intended to use it. And so he pulled his software off of uh, the public repo, which caused chef to uh, go down. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, as a form of protest. And uh, and then what you saw was sort of a interesting tack of crisis management. One, there's the technical side of how do we get our business back up and running, but B, this larger question of do we, you know, how do we view taking money for, uh, from uh, an organization that may or may not be values aligned with its employees? Very, I think I saw on Twitter, there was some talk, um, uh, mostly hate, but but some talk. Um, the CEO, I think, came out and made some statement, and then other people didn't like that. I suppose it's a very difficult situation to be in. Had the entire chef stack been closed source proprietary, uh, it would have probably been a different kind of conversation. But now they they really are dependent on the open source community, or at least they have been. I don't know if right. that's going to change. And those people, they get a vote too, it sounds like. Yeah. For, for sure. Um, so you see that stuff going on. You see sort of the Google walkout um, things going on. Um, and you're starting to see just a lot more of like, wait, how do we hold each other? Like, how do we 
how do we hold each other accountable to uh, to not just making money, but also working towards a, a social good? It's funny. It seems like, and I'm just I haven't thought this through very much, so I'm just thinking of it now. I suppose the one good thing about quote just making money is at least everybody wants money. Generally, <laughs> I mean, more most people yeah. say more money is better. Um, it's when we have some money and then we say, what else should we be doing? What should kind of like you mentioned the poorly managed startup that uh, that that hits their product market fit and takes off. At that point, they start to say, oh, what should we do in this moment? A very important conversation that wasn't happening in the prior months before they took off because right. they were all about just finding the fit. Right, right. It seems to me that the difficulty comes, I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong here, but unless we have very clear share, shared values, it will be very hard to know what else should be the goal of our business. Yeah, I think that's true. I think about some of the more like treasured experiences I've had as an engineer, right? And what I tell folks is, you know, I've, I've been in this industry for 20 years. I've been a part of global rollouts. I've been a part of $100 billion product launch. Um, I've been a part of 10Xing a company and going public. And I don't remember any of the lines of code that I've written. <laughs> but I do remember the people who I spend the time with and the connections I've made and how I've taken those connections with me throughout my life. Um, like the best man at my wedding was someone who I worked with at my first job. The person who officiated my wedding was a manager of mine at Yahoo. And so there's something about how we come together as a group of humans that's, to me, has been more special than how much money we make or the code that I've written or the products I have put out. What a nice sentiment. Let's let's turn on that. Let's go towards that a little bit more, maybe with the idea of leadership models, yeah. how we work together and how we, um, the value of each contributor. How does that change kind of the traditional leadership model that many of us grew up in? Yeah, so I think what's, what is super interesting is I think we almost always see ourselves as pursuing some sort of leadership. When I was, I think I, I must have been you know, younger than 10 years old, but my mom was interviewing for a job promotion. And um, I asked my mom, like, so what happens if you get the job? And then she said, I become a boss. And like, well, then who do you take orders from? It's like, well, I have a boss. Then who does your boss take orders from? It's like, well, the boss has a boss. And then I kept going and going in my, you know, uh, toddler self and it's like what happens when you become your boss's 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 boss and then she told me jason then everyone else becomes your boss <laughs> <laughs> which was like so true as i've grown up um, and learned right everyone is following someone um, and we don't aren't always cognizant of how we're showing up as followers because we're so focused on being leaders um, and so like, you know, as a manager, I had a director who's my boss as a director, you have a VP or a CTO as your boss, as a CTO, you have a CEO as your boss, as a CEO, you have a board of directors as your boss. And if you're in the board of directors, who's your boss, all your investors. So, <laughs> and then um, if you're publicly traded, it's boy, then it gets yeah, really big. Exactly. And so we are always following someone. And so the question is like, how do we understand the ways in which we're following and be intentional about 
you know, what kind of follower we are. Ooh, um, I like that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. So we talk a lot about leadership skills. Right. Is there such a thing, do you think, as followership skills? And is that an area we need to invest in? I think so. Yes. I've seen, and I've seen this come in a couple of different flavors, right? As someone who is in a leadership position, I've seen folks get marginalized by, you know, being what we call like a pain in the ass. Um, someone yes. who's just like <laughs> constantly bringing up problems and, or have a general dissatisfaction. And it's a question of like, how do we hold this sort of constant pressure that we're getting from people who are following us? And sometimes it's welcome and sometimes it's not welcome. And how do we decide which is which, right? And so one of the things that has been really enlightening for me is actually followership has been studied and there's like different models of followership. The one that I've been using recently is called the Chalif model of followership, which is all things in management. It's a two by two. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Where. And we'll try and put a link to this in the show notes. Yeah, yeah where one access is uh, the amount of support you fo- you show your leader, and the other is the amount of challenge, right? And so, if you are a low support, low challenge individual, you're just showing up and doing the things you're being told to do, right? Which can be fine. There's a place for that. If the next sort of stage is someone who is high support, low challenge, which in that world, those are like your high functioning execution engines, right? You just give them something to do um, and they throw their full weight behind it. They're enthusiastic about it. Like this is the type of person that I think as leaders, we really are can fall in love with super easily. Like you give them the worst, mm-hmm. gnarliest, un- most unpleasant thing to do. And it's like, oh, absolutely. No, no problem. Done. And that's, that's great to have, but you also have to know that they're not going to challenge you. They're not going to question whether or not this is actually worthwhile or this is values aligned right. or this is what we need for the long run. They'll just do it. We go to the other side for people who are high challenge and low support. Those are people who are individualists is the, is the, what they called, they're called individualists. <laughs> the way that I describe this is like your typical grumpy senior engineer who is just <laughs> contrarian to the nth degree. We've all worked uh, with them. We've all experienced what that's like, not always pleasant. And and I think that what's great about having this model is that we have language that we can use to describe this type of person. And I think individualists, while the challenge is good, we have to understand what the dangers are in, in putting someone like that in a position of leadership, right? Where we ultimately, as a goal, as a company, we want to move in the same direction. We need to actually help one another affect change. And if we have individualists in leadership positions, what we end up with is just a very unfocused, sort of difficult to navigate team. Yeah, I feel like I've worked in organizations where the heads of divisions that are very yeah. siloed are those kind yeah, of people. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get into, well, we, we'll talk about that later. But um, the fourth model is a partner model. And the partner model is someone who provides high support, but also high challenge, right? And this is sort of the disagree and commit is the sort of the short uh, the shorthand for this type of person, but someone who will challenge you and ask you, you know, is this the right thing to do? And, but at the end, once decisions have been made, uh, they're on board and helping you affect that change. Really interesting. I'm thinking about um, my own style of followership. I'm not sure where yeah. I fall. I'll have to do some thinking. But 
as always, whenever we think deeply about something, we start to see what it's composed of. And you've you've nicely given us a model for thinking about some of the items that compose uh, followership. It also harkens back to a story I heard when my dad, when I was very young, where my dad said, you can either be a leader or a follower. And in that moment, I was given a binary choice as though it were two ends of a spectrum, a single spectrum, or or like a, a, a true or false leader, follower, like which which flag are you going to check on the on your personality? Um, but I've, I'm wondering if great leaders can also be great followers and if great followers should be great leaders. And if they're not actually two spectrums, kind of like Hertzberg talks yeah. about motivation and mm-hmm. demotivation being, being two different things rather than along one spectrum. Yeah, totally. I think you can, I think those two things can be true at the same time. You can be a leader and a follower, right? And for what, you know, I think leadership is for social reasons and, you know, how, how our, uh, how we are rewarded, the dominant mode and mindset that we're in. Um, the interesting thing about followership is I think um, you're not just one thing all the time, right? And it, depending on the context, it switches. Right. And so like when I'm at home, my wife has knows all about, she's in film and TV, she knows all about um, construction and building things. And so in that context, when she's telling me to do something, I'm just the doer or the executor. Like I am not, my job is not to challenge. I am out of my depth here. <laughs> <laughs> my job is to rely on her expertise and, and get and get the job done, right? Um, when I show up as at work, it's a bit of a different story. Yeah, and there's expectations, uh, I bet, in both yeah. contexts. But expectations of you, expectations you have of others. Have you ever seen leadership get sort of passed around like a baton, like groups where sometimes you'll lead and then sometimes I'll lead and we take turns. Yes, absolutely. Um, I love those models. <laughs> um, they're great in terms of learning. They're great in terms of building a shared context. They're great in terms of building new experiences. Um, I, I think you know, an overloaded term is like sort of this tech lead position, which is not really well defined across companies. But in, in the way that I've used a tech lead, it is basically the person who does the tie breaking, right? Like if there, there's oh, I like that. behavior and you can give that baton to someone uh, on a per project basis. And sometimes it is you give this person that baton because they, uh, this is a super important project and you trust their judgment. And sometimes you give them the baton because this is a great learning opportunity for this person. And the, pro- the project is appropriately sized for them to acquire a new set of skills and get comfortable with the role. Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, I think, oh, this is hard to admit. I think when I got promoted to be a team lead, that was the role in the software engineering group. I was a a team lead and I had to still code a lot and then I was supposed to manage a lot. I got handed the baton and I gripped it very tightly. I thought this was really hard to get. And if I give it away, I may not get it back. So the first year I spent sort of hoarding the baton. (laughs) I wonder if that's common. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I was uh, listening to your most recent episode about sort of your induction into the management discipline. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking. And using your first team words, which I've really yeah, appreciated. Oh, thank you. Um, and I was just thinking, wow, like what a gift of like having a, a one-year program and a cohort to go through this experience with. Um, that I think it's just, I guess, I think, you know, is uncommon in the industry and is something that I think we should try to make more common. I've been thinking the same thing. In fact, uh, I guess it, 
it was about six months ago, I kind of got this idea of trying to bring it back. And I, uh, I have a little mailing list and I asked them and like in a day, a hundred people clicked a link that said, yeah, I'm interested in talking yeah. about this. And I was like, wow, one email got a hundred people around the company who were interested in do in not, not in saying I want to be trained as much as saying, I want my organization to have this. Um, and I think all that means is it's maybe, maybe, maybe the time yeah. is right to start talking about some sort, like, br- let's bring this back. So getting back to like the leadership models, I think what's something that's interesting is again, um, this, what we understand to be leadership is like having all the answers and making all the decisions and being the sole individual like on the hook for those things. And as folks step into these leadership and management positions for the first time, there's a high degree of uncertainty. And in those moments, like I remember problems were coming at me so quickly. Like I was making decisions with like the barest essence of my soul. Like um, I, and I knew that um, a, there are probably a ton of biases that I wasn't fully aware of going into the decisions being made. Um, and uh, B, like, this feels terrible. And how do I get out of this hole? Um, and it turns out this is like a common experience for all of us. And so it if is. we instead, like, instead of internalizing all that, finding a way to externalize that with a, with a, with a, with a cohort and a group of folks, like your first team, you find that, um, you, it's A, it's a lot more sustainable, but B, you also get a lot better outcomes in, in the long run. Yeah, I, I remember that feeling. In fact, I remember my boss uh, at some point had a sign that said like decisions in five minutes or they're free, you know, kind of a funny yeah. little. And I thought, oh, it's important to make decisions yeah. fast. And I remember because f- exactly as you say, every day people are looking to you to make all these decisions, your boss, your customer, your team. And every time you make a decision, of course, you rob someone else of the opportunity to give input, to think about the decision, to, you don't pass that baton. And not only is it really tiring, um, but I think your decision, my decision quality wasn't great. And I knew it. I didn't want to talk about it, but somehow I knew it, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, And then, you know, and and I just tried to figure out, like, why is it that we just hold on to these things? Um, what, What has... What has led to us feeling like we need to be these islands, right? Versus versus working together. There's this model that I uh, sort of happened upon um, that I was thinking about one day as I was working with like my peer directors, and you know we think of ourselves like if I think of myself as a tree, right? Like um, you know we might think of ourselves as an oak or maybe like a a Douglas fir or you know some wonderful tree in an orchard somewhere. But the thing about those trees is that they exist in pretty nice climates. And the environment of a fast-growing startup is not bad. The environment of a fast-growing startup is brutal. <laughs> and we're in like this oak tree that I that I may envision myself as, I'm actually probably more like those twisted, gnarled up trees in the desert, like that are just wind whipped <laughs> and bent in certain ways and i just don't realize it and like what does that mean for the rest of my peers like they're probably also in that same bandwagon and so how do we get our trees to grow together um versus like spreading apart right like how do we how do we survive 
I want to take just a moment and thank my sponsor, Get Prime. Get Prime has sponsored the show, not just because they're fantastic people, but because they really believe that leadership and engineering is about people. It's about conversations. And Get Prime is a platform that allows you to have better conversations with people. Yes, it has lots of other benefits. You can probably plan better. You can see metrics about individual performance. But let's just take that one idea about individual performance. Whenever I talk with a Get Prime user, and by the way, lots of my clients are Get Prime users, they always tell me how surprised they were at what was really happening on the team. See, it's really easy for you as a manager to observe generally how people are working. You can look at PRs. You can look at who's assigned what tickets. You as the CLM, the software engineering manager, you get a notion for what people are doing. But there's always these beautiful surprises about who is really performing well and who's secretly struggling, about who's the person that's saving everybody's bacon through fixing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, and who is absolutely doing all the PRs. This kind of data lets you move from looking at people as just, well, they're all engineers and they're all kind of doing engineering work, to seeing exactly where each one of them is strong and has opportunities to grow. And that's why I love this tool so much. I believe that new and surprising conversations come out of data, that when you can sit down with somebody and start to understand and intuit why things are happening, you're going to create even better quality of exchanges. And by the way, you know here on this show, we talk about the fact that leadership is what keeps people connected to their work and prevents turnover and keeps them motivated. It's about the relationship. I like to say that Get Prime not only lets you build better software, it lets you build a better relationship with your team members. Start a free trial today at GetPrime.com. I love that metaphor. Uh, that and you know some some environments are very conducive, and the trees are not that right. strong, and it just happens to be right. the great climate. It's right. great soil, and other places. Like I've seen trees growing yeah. on rocks in the beach and a little bit of sand accumulated and a tree grew. And you're like, where's the soil? That tree really had to fight yeah. to be there. But the, you can tell, right. right? And I think that's what you say about a startup is brutal. Sometimes I wonder if startup looks like weeds coming out of concrete, <laughs> like nothing should grow there. But but it is thriving and surviving in dis, despite of all the right, conditions. Right. But when we don't know what we look like, and I guess that's the part I want to come back to, if we imagine we're one thing and we're another, I think that's where things get kind of precarious. Yeah, those self-awareness pieces, right, um, is super difficult to come to sort of cross an inflection point. I feel like we all t- try to be the hero of our own story. <laughs> and, you know, what are the moments that we, as we as we go through our leadership and management journeys that provide us that reflection. And I think that's really where like coaching helps and journaling helps and like having a team to talk things out with helps because we get that, it, you know, as you become a manager and leader, the power dynamic grows, like the feedback that you're getting is always filtered in some way, even if in the most healthiest organizations, like there's some degree of impression management going on. So how do you, like it really, you do really do have to do your own self-work and self-education to work through those things. So if our traditional leadership models aren't serving us very well yeah. today, and we're talking about, we're talking about, I feel like attributes of a new type of leadership model. Do we have a name? Do you have a name you like to use for it or kind of a theme that, that, that you found? <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I think my theme for it is like demasculinizing leadership. <laughs> um, 
Which does that mean inherently increasing femininity is in leadership or again, two scales possibly? I think it's, um, it, it might be two scales. I haven't quite fully figured it out yet, but I, I do want to broaden the spectrum of what we understand to be effective leadership. It is not just a set of masculine, what we traditionally associate with masculine uh, masculinity, but it is this range of ways of getting things done that don't necessarily conform to what we've previously understood to be effective leadership. I think it's really an area that that is yeah. evolving. Um, I hear people talking about, I, th- I, you know, servant leadership has been popular for a long time, and I feel like that is a response to command mm-hmm. and control, where we say, oh, the leader should serve. Instead of telling what to do, they should be a helpful support. And I think there's an aspect of that that's true. But it, sometimes I also think it, I guess, maybe goes too far. It doesn't talk about visioning. It doesn't talk about um, some of the other things that leaders should do and collaborating. Yeah. It It's sort of like, I'm embarrassed to be on the top, so I'll pretend I'm at the bottom of the hierarchy. And I think sometimes that can be a form of pretending as well. Yeah. I think the way that, that's interesting. Something that comes to mind that that reminds me of is a soldier versus scout mentality. Have you heard about this? Tell me more. I guess the way this usually shows up is there is this default model to the way that product and engineering works, where people call it a healthy friction, right? There needs to be this this butting of heads uh, that happens. To find the best right, whatever, right? right? right. Oftentimes. And yeah. even outside of engineering context, in like the five dysfunctions where I first got the, the first team concept, they talk about that first layer is an absence of trust and that lack of trust leads to an inability to a fear of conflict, right? It's already framed as we're going to fight about this. And what I found is it's not actually conflict that we're afraid of. It's exploration. It's exploring the idea of what if we're wrong, right? Or what if I don't have the full story? And so I, I, I'll talk about this in terms of soldier and scout minds that I got this, this from a woman by the name of Julia Galef, who is like the center of applied rationality, I think. Anyways, um, it's this idea that um, as humans, uh, like there's this soldier mentality. And I think once we've made up our minds about something, it's really hard for us to change our minds, right? This idea that we dig in. And when we get into soldier mentality, it is attack and defend. It is, I'm right, you're wrong. No, no, no. Like, I'm right, you're wrong. Vice versa, and back and forth. And when that happens, progress becomes incredibly hard, difficult, and like we get into this mode where it is you have to assert dominance over another person. It leads to us not being able to engage our prefrontal cortex and the logical centers of our brain. We're just in like I need to assert who I am and and survive in this mode. So uh, instead of soldier mentality, there's this thing called scout mentality, where instead of fighting back and forth about who's right and wrong, it, the model is it's two people or multiple people surveying a landscape and exploring a landscape and trying to reconcile the differences between what they're seeing, right? And in that space is where we find the collaboration and cooperation and an ability to change our minds without feeling like we have been diminished in some way, shape, or form. Because I really like that, Jason, because it seems like the self in, in this in this soldier mentality, the self and the self-identity and the self-worth, right. what's at risk? Totally. 
that's what we're oftentimes defending, or we have to prove that we're going to win and that it makes us worthy and valuable and all those right. other things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I haven't heard that model before. I'm going to look it up. Thank you. We'll include a link to the show notes to the, the person who yeah. uh, you talked about there is introducing it. Um, yeah. So I try to, so I think about that, especially in uh, coaching conversations in terms of like, how do you manage up? How do you manage out? Um, how do you have these difficult conversations with folks who might not quite be on, uh, see things the same way that you see things? Um, and how do you go from soldier mentality to scout mentality? Like, how do you de-escalate that situation so that we can actually engage our the logical centers of our brains and make progress? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, midway through um, a certification program for human systems mm. dynamics, and I think they might call that the practice of learning to stand mm, in inquiry. Yeah. And th- that's the phrasing they use. But yeah, it's about uh, becoming comfortable with not knowing and with asking questions and with asking, what do you see from yeah. here? Well, this is what I see from here. Um, and they have a really like a cute little phrase I'm starting to use more that there's just no naughty yeah. or nice is the <laughs> yes. way they say it. And, and I like that because it reminds me that your perspective and my perspective um, aren't good or bad. In fact, they're not of, they're especially not the only perspectives, but they can be true and useful tools for yeah, us to use. Absolutely. Um, and then as you apply that to groups of people, then you can see your job as facilitating that exploration, right? Um, and getting folks uh, to say, it's a, like, I need to hear your opinions or like, how do I draw out this information from everyone so that we can get an accurate assessment of the landscape ahead of us and make good decisions. Mm, okay, now I'm going to turn the conversation here if, I, if I'm allowed to do that. I guess it's we're both grown up. I can do <laughs> it's that, your right? show. <laughs> um, I, well, and, and you're my guest, and I appreciate that. Let's talk about this in our last moments here. So imagine somebody's listening, and they sure like mm-hmm. these ideas, but they've got a team, and every time they ask their team together, okay, who, who, who knows what we should do or what should we do next? They just get blank yeah. silences, you know, blank stares. Um, how can they open up a new kind of conversation where they are finding out what people see and think, and they start to set aside maybe their own assumptions Mm -hmm. that they have to make that decision. And they, maybe they put the baton in the middle of the table, making it available to others. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So I think of a lot of tactics. The first one is uh, obviously like, how do you set the context for a meeting? I think another skill that I, I find um, that is often forgotten is context setting. Um, like, how do we get to here, and how do we want to conduct ourselves for the next hour? Right. So, um, especially if we're doing something new. So, like, here's the context. Like, we have this problem that we need to figure out. Um, we there's a lot that we don't know. There's a lot that we may know this meeting is for us to get all that stuff out on the table, right? Setting that context of just articulating what's going on, um, which is a super valuable <laughs> um, thing. And often yeah, forgotten. Yeah. As leaders, again, we are so often having conversations with ourselves that we've forgotten that we haven't had, we haven't, we haven't put that voice, we haven't put a voice to it in, in the real world. So just right. repeating that. Um, there is another concept that I love, which is partnering with people, right? Sort of seeding, seeding that that content so it's like hey so you might go to someone before the meeting hey you know i really like your ideas about this x y and z 
I, we're going to have a meeting uh, next week. I would love it if like you put those ideas out. Those are the types of things that I would love to, to see. Um, so there's, there's that bit of it. Um, there's also, you know, how do you establish or how do you encourage people to say things that contradict what other people say, right? Like in terms of it's okay to disagree. And in that world, I find the, the best way to do that, A, is to have someone disagree with you who's leading the meeting and model proper uh, re reception of that disagreement to say it's okay um, and to invite it. So I was in a, I was helping a team the other day and we're doing sprint planning and trying to figure out like what to work on. Um, and I, we put up on the board sort of three areas that we wanted to focus on. And say so those are the three areas we want to work on. Um, and what I can tell you is here's our hypothesis of why we should work on these things. And you can definitely punch me in the face right now by saying, where's the data to back this up? And I will definitely say, I don't have any data. These are just my instincts, right? That is okay. Just to let people know where I'm at, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. You, I mean, I hope no one did punch <laughs> right. you in the face, yes. first of but all. Metaphorical. Um, but but <laughs> metaphorical punch in the face. You can oppose right. me. We can, uh, and, and you're kind of... Um, the what you know, since we're using this uh, martial or yeah. military kind of metaphor of a punch, in some ways you took the armor off, you exposed, you took the breastplate yeah. off. If it were like you know knights or the round table, and you're like, just this is this is what I think, and I have no reason besides a hunch right. to think. Yeah, of. yeah. And see, so even then, like I like defaulted to that like violent <laughs> mode as I'm like I was as say. I'm <laughs> trying to make forays into. Uh, being more peaceful in my in my leadership style it it's is. very hard it's i hear military metaphors i'm uh i work with a team and um it's funny because there are it, it's a distributed team and there are certain people that everybody kind of like jokingly yeah. trolls and and you know um but as a new person i didn't understand it and i went to the the person who was getting this and i said what's happening right now I don't understand. And if it were me, I might have a feeling right. about it. And they gave me all this context, but it dawned on me that some other people in the company that were new may not have that yeah. context, may not have yeah. asked. And so um, some of that kind of behavior, uh, I think it's, it's so cultural that it's hard to explain, but that doesn't make it a good part of it. Um, it just makes it what is. And sometimes we forget that it could be something else. Totally, totally. Jason, what uh, last question here? What it, what books, resources, videos? Uh, what should we go? Um, what are you interested in that you want people here to to know about that we should follow up with if we like these topics? Yeah, that's a good question. So you can find my blog these days at jwongworks.com. Um, yeah, oh, okay. trying, to, trying to get legitimate with my business. <laughs> nice. I think I found you at Attack yes. Gecko. Yeah, yeah. Is, uh -huh. is that right? Uh, that's my personal site, and I've, well, running a business is, and marketing is adventure. That's yes, a whole other show, right? Uh, so content <laughs> there. Um, you know, there are folks I follow on the internet. Uh, Lara Hogan is always um, wonderful, um, and the content, content that she puts out. She also had a 
put out a book recently called Resilient Management, which I think is great. Um, I think I also have to recommend uh, Camille Fournier's book on the manager's path, which is um, just sort of a wonderful exploration and survey of, of what uh, senior developing into senior leadership looks like. Um, one of the books that's been that I've gotten a lot of value out of uh, is Give and Take by Adam Grant. Um, there's all sorts of interesting okay. research in terms of um, just having the value of having a framework uh, to to make decisions by or and or to to help you analyze problems. So Give and Take is this book about uh, humans and uh, our different types of default behaviors. Uh, the idea is that there are givers, uh, people who intrinsically do things for others without thinking about themselves. There's the opposite of that of takers, which is people who do things for themselves um, exclusively. And then there are folks in the middle who are matchers. And if they give, they take, if they take, they give, they have this even sense of, um, of both. But uh, I don't want to spoil it for you all. But <laughs> that sounds quite lovely. I'll have to buy a yeah. copy of that. Jason, thank you for coming on the show. Um, and I think, uh, is there an email address where people can get in touch with you if they have uh, You can find me at, uh, at Attack Gecko on, on the Twitters. And uh, my DMs are open. Great. Thank you thank for being you on so the much. show. Thank you for listening to Programming Leadership. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at www.programmingleadership.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.